Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Got a lot to talk about today. Uh, Later on in the program, we're going to talk about descent by the numbers, by which I mean the percentages of practicing Catholics who either want to see the doctrine of the Church changed, or even those who don't want to see the doctrine changed, but uh, are convinced that change is inevitable. And we're also going to uh, discover some insights about church interior design and, and whether or not modern art can actually function as liturgical art. But to start off, this Sunday, the beginning of this week, was the fourth Sunday of Lent, uh, known as Litare Sunday, from the first word of the introit, Litare, which means rejoice. And like Gaudete Sunday in Advent, this is one of two Sundays of the year where the priest um, is allowed to wear rose-colored vestments. Rose being the color that you get when you dial back the blue in the violet of the penitential vestments. And so blue being a uh, color that's identified with sadness in the Western world, in Western culture, right? We talk about, you know, having a blue Monday or having the blues or singing the blues, etc. Our Lady uh, is also associated with the color blue because she is Our Lady of Sorrows. She is the one whom Simeon at the presentation prophesied that a sword of sorrow would pierce her heart. And, and so it did when she accompanied our Lord in his dolorous passion, when she stood at the foot of Calvary at his crucifixion and received his lifeless body when it was taken down from the cross. But uh, like Gaudete Sunday, Latari Sunday is a respite in the middle of a penitential season. Uh, it's a reminder that in Lent we are preparing for the Easter joy And this is kind of the midway point, so it's time to regroup, it's time to recommit to our Lenten sacrifices if if we've uh, stumbled, and to double down on our practices of prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And then speaking of joyous, this week also um, marks the joyous liturgical celebration of the Annunciation. The 25th of March, our Lord was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary just nine months prior to December 25th which is, of course, the Feast of the Nativity. And so we're going to look at the Gospel for the Annunciation, which coincidentally is the same in both the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass. So two birds with one stone. It's taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, reading from the New Catholic Bible translation. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by his words and wondered in her heart what this salutation could mean. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus." He will be great, and his son will be called, and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing 
will be impossible for God. Then Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. After this, the angel departed from her. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So St. Luke tells us that Mary, a young girl, is betrothed, literally espoused, to a man named Joseph. And that is, according to the custom of the time, uh, she was legally married, but did not yet live with her husband because they hadn't had the official wedding ceremony. Uh, and all of the, you know, the marital act was not allowed until after that official wedding ceremony, yet espousal uh, could only be severed by divorce or death, right? So the, the contractual part of the marriage had already taken place. And, and we can see that Mary was espoused to Joseph despite the fact that she had the intention of remaining a virgin. And this is the only explanation for her confusion when the angel says that she will have a son. I mean, not only are children the natural gift of marriage, but in the culture of the day, uh, for her to have a son as her firstborn child was considered a special blessing. Certainly not the cause of, of you know, confusion or, or you know, uh, consternation for a betrothed young woman, unless, of course, she intended to remain a perpetual virgin. And I should mention that vows of virginity were certainly not unheard of in the first century any more than they are in the 21st. But why then get married? Well, some biblical theologians, mostly modern scholars, conjecture that Joseph was himself a young man who was also vowed to virginity. Uh, other scholars, mostly the traditional ones, suspect that Joseph was an older man, and you'll find in older works of Catholic art that Joseph is largely portrayed as a man with, you know, gray hair and, and beard. Uh, so an older man, possibly with grown children, uh, which would, you know, nicely account for the quote-unquote brothers and sisters of Jesus, but a man who was contracting marriage to ease the burden of his old age, but expecting to live in continence with his virginal wife. So hence the, the so-called anxiety of St. Joseph when he discovered that Mary was with child was not caused by his belief that Mary was an adulteress, God forbid, but because, as the scripture says, he discovered that she was with child by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, his desire to, to quote-unquote, put her away quietly was motivated by the fact that as a just man, he considered himself unworthy to take her into his home. Uh, this, uh, scholars call this the reverence theory as opposed to the, the suspicion theory as if Joseph thought that Mary was an adulteress. Like I say, God forbid. He already knew, according to the scripture, that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit. The angel merely confirms this when he tells Joseph to set aside his pious fears because as the son of David, he will fulfill the role of the legal father of the Messiah. Right? Uh, Jesus is by nature, the son of David, because Mary was descended from David, but he legally, in you know, the Jewish law of, of uh, succession, right, the, the, the royal succession, uh, his legal father has to be a descendant of David, and that's his foster father, St. Joseph. So it was because of his great reverence that the angel appears to him in a dream and says, don't fear to take Mary, your wife, into your home. And this, by the way, I think I'm in good company. This was the opinion both of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Thomas Aquinas. See, I managed to get St. Bernard in even before we were done with the first segment. <laughs> in any case, Mary, uh, confronted with the surprising message of the angel, gives no sign of fear or doubt. 
She doesn't ask how can this be, like Zechariah, who was punished for his disbelief. Instead, she says, how will this be? She understands, uh, and when she's understandably curious, because God wouldn't allow her, or wouldn't uh, ask her, rather, to break her vow of virginity. So she's curious, how, how will this be? Mary reflects, she meditates, most importantly, she believes. This young woman had the, the favor, or more properly, the grace of God. She's greeted as if the, the messianic joy was being announced or proclaimed to the daughter of Zion. You know, uh, the new Jerusalem as prophesied by Zephaniah and, and Zechariah, which accounts, by the way, for the 1970 New American Bible translation, Greetings, O Highly Favored Daughter. It's an allusion to the daughter of Zion. And uh, unfortunately, while the angel's greeting uh, certainly supports that interpretation, uh, as you know, John Paul II himself uh, pointed out, however, it is just that. It's an interpretation, not a translation. Any first-year Latin student can tell you that Ave Gratia Plena translates hail full of grace. And, and this was corrected in the English lectionary for the Revised Roman Missal, but the New American Bible Revised Edition reads, Hail Favored One. So they tried to kind of split the difference. Now, be that as it may, Scripture had often spoken about promised sons, but this Jesus is the very Messiah of Israel. According to the mysterious prophecy of Isaiah on which Israel had constantly hoped and meditated. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, God with us. His dominion will grow continually. There will be endless peace bestowed on David's throne and over his kingdom. He will establish and sustain it with justice and integrity from that time onward and forevermore, echoing the, uh, the words of the angel. So, and that's from Isaiah seven fourteen and 9, 6. But Jesus is even more than that. Verse 35 says he is the very Son of God. And the body, the humanity of Jesus, was to take form in the flesh of Mary. And this was to come about not by any human agency, but through the presence and action of God himself. Like we, if you look in Exodus or Numbers, you see that it's the Spirit of God that creates and gives life. So uh, the, Luke says the angel came to her in the sixth month. That's a reference to um, the conception of John the Baptist, that, uh, that Elizabeth is in her sixth month. And Mary asks, how will this be um, in the translation we use today, for I am a virgin? Now, that's, this is actually one of the few cases where the New American Bible has a little better translation, uh, although it says, how can this be, which is, which is not really uh, correct. <laughs> the rest of the verse reads, since I have no relations, how will this be since I have no relations with a man? Literally, uh, her words, quonium uh, virum non cognosco, for I know not man, with no referring to the marital act. Now, in other words, I have no relations with a man means more than I'm a virgin. I have no relations with a man, meaning I will remain a virgin, right? I don't do that, and that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we'll finish up with the Annunciation and then talk about interior design of churches. Does it matter? We'll look at uh, the winners of the Pontifical Academy's Award for uh, Church Design and lots more when we return with more No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Yeah.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about the gospel account of the Annunciation, the feast coming up on Saturday. And I wanted to say a kind of a final word. Uh, in confirmation of the angel's word, uh, St. Gabriel tells Mary of the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth. That's where we left off. That God had granted a child to a woman who is past childbearing years. And I suspect that little detail is put in there by Luke really for our benefit to show that the power of the Holy Spirit can, you know, if, if he has affected a pregnancy in a woman past childbearing age, he can likewise affect a pregnancy in the ever-Virgin Mary, because nothing is impossible for God. And uh, a quick word about the angelic salutation. The words of the angel we repeat many times a day. Uh, the Hail Mary, right, obviously prominent in the, the Angelus, the Holy Rosary, etc. And his greeting, Ave, Hail Mary, indicates the, the archangel's uh, profound veneration for the Blessed Virgin, something that we should recognize and imitate. Also, the words gratia plena, full of grace, remind us that God bestowed, uh, bestowed upon the Blessed Virgin greater graces than upon all other angels and men put together, and not for her sake alone, but for ours also. So the angelical salutation, the Hail Mary, encourages you to pray to Mary with zeal and with confidence that by her powerful intercession she will obtain for you the graces necessary to save your soul, uh, the graces necessary for your salvation. As St. Bernard said, Jesus came to us through Mary. He now desires that we go to him through her. Ad Jesum per Mariam, to Jesus through Mary. And that's no nonsense. All right. Hey, by the way, the 2023 Men's Conference coming up this June 17th right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina with the Brothers Romero, Jesse and Johnny Romero, together again. There's going to be apologetics and power preaching on the spirituality for men, spiritual warfare for dads, lots more. Register now at vmpr.org, and I do recommend that you pre-register. I know June seems like a long way off, but it'll come up quick, and this will sell out. It's uh, $45 admission for a single, or $80, or rather, sorry, $80, yes, for father and son. Okay, so $45 for a single, $80 for father and son. Now, uh, I wonder if you've, like me, you're on the social media, if you have seen photos of the gold and silver medal winners of the latest Pontifical Academies Award for Sacred Architecture. Uh, the renovation of the Chapel of Saints Francis of Assisi and Catherine of Siena Foundation in Rome won the gold, and the silver was awarded for a new Church of San Tommaso in Pontedera, Italy. Both are barren, sterile, colorless spaces devoid of any decoration, ornamentation, or symbolism that could be construed as Catholic, with the possible exception of the gold prize winner, uh, which has a disproportionately tiny corpus on the, uh, on the cross, otherwise, you know, an otherwise plain cross. The, the gold medal winner does have the uh, aforementioned crucifix, a cube-shaped altar, a cube-shaped tabernacle, and an ambo that's not quite cube-shaped because it's necessarily taller than it is wide, all of this covered in the same gray material, kind of a rough, it might be, uh, I don't know, unfinished driftwood or possibly rough-hewn shale. I can't really tell by the picture. The, the, the runner-up uh, worship space is similarly accoutred, 
but uh, with no visible tabernacle and no corpus on the cross. Now, Anthony Esselin, terrific uh, uh, and prolific writer, has an essay on Crisis Magazine website called The Anti-Language of Modernist Art. And uh, he makes his critique there. And I'm not going to go through it all. I mean, it's definitely worth reading on your own, and we will have the uh, link to that in the show notes on the app for today's episode. But Professor Esselin is an excellent writer. He has a poetic bent, um, and he waxes eloquently about the beauty and variety of churches that were built in this country in the hundred years between 1850 and 1950. Then, he says, the modernist virus infected the minds of churchmen, who by the time I was a boy were encouraged by bad education to consider themselves superior to such trivial matters as beauty and human storytelling. At great expense, they obliterated much of that art the people still loved, sending it down the ecclesiastical memory hole. People are starved for beauty, he says, but instead, in churches like the Pontifical Academy's winners, quote, we give them capsules with dust in them. Now, I'm not an expert on liturgical art, but I did a great deal of research on Catholic um, artistic symbolism when I was called upon to answer the nonsensical claims of Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. And in the process, I discovered something. I discovered that modern abstract art is worse than useless as liturgical art. And the reason is that art in its classic definition is meant to express the truth. And this is done through a whole uh, vocabulary of symbolism that grew up in the Middle Ages and on through the uh, Renaissance and into the Baroque period. And by the Victorian age, All of those elements were in play in churches that were built with great creativity, great beauty, and great variety, Uh, you know. But with the exception of the the color schemes, if you can call it that, you know, uh, gray and off-white versus brown and beige, the two award winners were virtually analogous to each other. They might have been designed by the same person, you know, down to the fact that the only shapes employed were right angles, Now, art has a purpose to express the truth. Liturgical art likewise has a purpose, which is to lift the heart and the mind to God, or to help do so, because that's the purpose of prayer. And that's what houses of worship are for. Now, the problem is that somewhere along the way, the purpose of art devolved from the artist expressing the truth to the artist expressing himself, which has led to the, frankly, ludicrous yet all-too-common experience of museum-goers Uh, you know, standing around some lump of materials or collection of paint splatters, asking themselves, I wonder what the artist meant by that. Now, if you're asking that question of art that is, or, or the utter lack of art in a Catholic church, then the work of the artist or architect is a complete failure in that it does not serve the purpose of liturgical art and architecture, which is to draw the heart and mind to God. I recall some years ago being in a church that had Uh, abstract paintings for the Stations of the Cross. And and they consisted primarily of some vertical splashes of paint uh, on a a dark, amorphous background. Now, I went up close to look for the Roman numerals to find out, you know, where they started and where they ended. And uh, um, I must admit, I was at a loss to, to see the various scenes in those abstract representations until I got to the fourth Station of the Cross. 
And, and looking at this orange vertical splash of paint next to the smaller white vertical splash of paint, uh, I imagined that I could discern the meeting of our Lord and his blessed mother. And then, well, I gave up after that. <laughs> anyway, after spending some time uh, in front of the Blessed Sacrament in prayer, I went out to the vestibule of the church and I found a stack of informational brochures explaining the paintings of the stations and how proud they were that this, you know, a certain famous artist had done them. And what I discovered, <laughs> coincidentally, is the, uh, the fact that they were meant to represent the scriptural stations of the cross— first celebrated in Rome back in 1991 by Pope St. John Paul II. So what I took for the meeting of Mary and Jesus on the way of the cross was actually meant to represent Peter's denial of Jesus, right? And artwork that literally requires a brochure is less than worthless in drawing the heart and mind to God. Now, even amongst traditional forms, I have my own personal preferences, I mean, if the goal of church art is to help lift the heart and mind to God, then the, the embodiment of that goal must be the Gothic cathedral. Uh, the magnificent vaulted arches uh, filled with colorful stained glass. Not only does that lift the heart and mind to God, but, but it inspires an instinctive feeling of awe. Uh, a, a feeling that would mirror or at the very least evoke what I suspect would be the feeling when standing in the presence of God himself. Which, of course... Uh, Technically, we are, because God really is present in the tabernacle, which in a Gothic cathedral is in the sanctuary front and center in the, in the center of the altar. Now, spiritual writers of days gone by would refer to Christ in the Eucharist reserved in the, in the church as the prisoner of the tabernacle. But never before in our history have we had tabernacles that actually resemble prisons, square and cold, and gray, and unadorned. On the other hand, I'm also aware of the excesses of the Baroque period. Uh, you know, I was visiting Etel Monastery, 13th century monastery in Bavaria. Uh, I was speaking at a pilgrimage there, uh, or, you know, a week-long retreat. And to get into the church, you have to pass through uh, this great iron-bound wooden medieval doors set in this magnificent Gothic arch. Uh, and that opened onto an equally impressive medieval vestibule with a somewhat smaller and more delicate set of doors in another, you know, magnificent Gothic archway, which led into the church proper. But when you stepped into the church, you get a surprise because um, the, the, it was set on fire, during the German Wars of Religion that was sparked by Luther's revolt, which you have know, unhappy memory, and, and the medieval interior of the old Gothic church had been destroyed, and it was later rebuilt in the Baroque era and in the Baroque style. So every inch of the interior of that church is covered with gold and marble statuary and immense colorful uh, oil paintings and, and all of that set amongst all this very opulent gold ornamentation. Even the the... the confessionals, magnificent, beautifully uh, hand-carved in the Baroque style and, uh, and on the penitential sides where, you know, where the penitents kneel on either side, they have you know, oil paintings of the Stations of the Cross uh, as it, you go through the church. Just incredible. And just, just a riot of, of color and beauty. And uh, now that's not as much to my taste as the original would have been. 
But it was undeniably beautiful, undeniably priceless, undeniably the product of great uh, patience and creativity and skill and artistic genius, and undeniably drew the eyes upward and with them the heart and the mind. Now, if you were to pass through those outer doors and make a left turn on entering the vestibule, you would find another impressive 13th century Gothic archway uh, down the hall. And passing through that, you enter into the chapel where the pilgrims heard mass on most of the days during our retreat. It's a modern chapel, uh, with altar, credence table, lectern, etc., all made of a light-colored wood and, and, and metal framing that looked for all appearances to have been designed by the same people who make the furniture for Ikea. And uh, the, the, the seating, even, was made of, of matching wood and metal and constructed like bleachers at a Little League uh, softball game. All right. Once again, no, no decoration or ornamentation of any kind. And I'll talk about... Uh, <laughs> I'll get to the point, I promise, when we get on the other side of the break. Okay, so stay with us. No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking about interior design in churches, and I was... I was talking about visiting a, 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 a Gothic cathedral in Bavaria that was built in the 13th century. By the way, the monks there have been making beer since the 13th century, and I can tell you right now, <laughs> Ettler Kloster beer. And I get the Dunkel, which is German for dark. The dark, the dark Ettler Kloster beer is the best beer I have ever had. So if you, you know, really wanted to get me a gift, go to the, your local beer importer. <laughs> And my, my beloved wife actually did that for me for Father's Day a few years ago, and it was a, it was a tremendous gift. Anyway, uh, I digress. I was just talking about how in this one um, structure you have the medieval foundation and you have a, a main church that is in the Baroque style, and then down the hall you have a, a chapel that's in the completely uh, uh, new order style, right? Just just barren and, and sterile with no ornamentation at all, no corpus on the cross, and with the exception of a couple of potted plants and, uh, and a one, the back wall behind the sanctuary was made entirely of glass, a textured glass. You couldn't see through it, but the light could come through it. And in the texturing, it creates the effect prism-like of a muted rainbow. And again, you don't have to have a degree in symbolism to understand what that was meant to represent. Okay, uh, the point is, it, did, it didn't lift my heart and mind to God or make me think of anything, you know, made me think of anything but uh, the divine and the morally beautiful. Thankfully, Bavaria is filled with absolutely magnificent uh, medieval and Baroque Catholic churches, some of which I managed to uh, visit as well as some of the magnificent castles of the last Catholic king of Bavaria, Ludwig II. Uh, 19th century, uh, in the 19th century, Ludwig managed to, to build structures of lasting beauty with both a medieval-slash-baroque uh, sensibility, but also incorporating modern conveniences, you know, uh, indoor plumbing and heating and electricity and so forth. Um, the people loved him, and they loved uh, him for... Uh, his buildings and for his devotion to the arts. Uh, 
If it weren't for the patronage of Ludwig II, we wouldn't have many of the great musical works of Richard Wagner. Or Neuschwanstein, which is the quintessential medieval-style castle that inspired Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland, and, and countless other works of art and imagination. That castle is just everywhere. And uh, Ludwig, I said he was a devotee of Wagner. When he became king at a young age, at 18 years old, he endeavored to contact the great composer and discovered that he was destitute, living on the streets, and he arranged to bring him to court. And after their first meeting, Wagner, aware of the temper of the times, wrote to a friend of his, he said, Today I was led before the young king. He is unfortunately so noble and brilliant, so magnificent and soulful, that I fear his life must vanish like a fleeting stream in this coarse world. My luck is so great that I am crushed by it. If only he can live. He is such an unheard of wonder. And uh, they eventually had a falling out over uh, Wagner's adultery, which did not uh, uh, correspond well with Ludwig's Catholicism. But uh, it was a fruitful relationship in that Wagner composed his great hero operas, and, and Ludwig constructed an opera house and founded the Munich School of Music, which made the Bavarian capital the rival of Vienna as a, as a musical center. Like I said, the people loved Ludwig. They called him their fairy tale king. Unfortunately, his ministers, eager to embrace uh, egalitarianism and, uh, and uh, profit thereby, accused him, Judas-like, of wasting money building his castles and opera houses and sought to have him declared mentally incompetent. He finally drowned under suspicious circumstances while under house arrest at his beloved Neuschwanstein. So he was, in fact, uh, too noble, brilliant, magnificent, and soulful to be allowed to live. The great irony is that uh, he was accused of being wasteful so much that uh, they doubted his sanity. But after his death, people from all over the world flocked to see to Bavaria to see his wonderful castles. And the income generated by that has surpassed the cost of those magnificent buildings many, many times over. But I digress. Uh, this all started earlier this week when the Vatican tweeted out that Pope Francis had congratulated the winners who designed those dreadful barren spaces that the Pontifical Academies judge worthy of their highest honor. Uh, and although I suspect yeah, it's probably just the kind of boilerplate best wishes that's routinely cranked out by some low-level bureaucrat at the Vatican who's you know responsible for these perfunctory missives. But Pope Francis you know, uh, himself has actually urged a recovery of symbolic language. But apart from, the, you know, the, the cross, th these award winners had virtually no symbols at all. They speak no language, not, not that of the church or, or of their particular culture. There was nothing Catholic, nothing Italian. It, it, there was no reference to the inspired part of the deposit of faith that Catholics called tradition. And yet this, I suppose, should not be surprising. Uh, according to the article by Anthony Esselin I talked about, he said the same Francis who said that the church must be acculturated for the various peoples she wishes to evangelize, has also said inexplicably that sacred architecture must be free of cultural influences and human subjectivity. And all I can say is mission accomplished. And that's no nonsense. Okay, um, for the remainder of the program, I want to talk about our topic of today, which is descent by the numbers. I've often said that one of the worst things about doing a weekly show is not being able to comment on things as they happen. 
On the other hand, one of the best things about doing a weekly show is not being able to comment on things as they happen, right? Which allows the stories to unfold and for the commentary to have a little more depth. You know, by now, we've all heard about the conclusions of the Deutschland Synodaliweg, the German Synodal Way. And while all the consequences of the Synodal Way can't be predicted, much was decided. The German bishops overwhelmingly approved church blessings of same-sex unions and unions between divorced and, and civilly remarried Catholics, uh, that is, say, you know, remarried without annulment, as well as giving communion to those Catholics who have been divorced and remarried without benefit of annulment. All of that's happening already. German dioceses are to allow lay people to preach at Mass. Notice it doesn't say lay men, but lay people, which means women preaching at Mass, which means uh, to put feminists and LGBT, etc., etc., advocates in the pulpit. Oh, Matthew, you don't know that. Why would you say that? Well, because the German dioceses are now also required to promulgate an anthropology that is an image of the human person that complies with the current gender ideology. Further, they are called upon to request that the Pope rescind the obligation of priestly celibacy and re-examination the prohibition on women's ordination, as if St. John Paul II had not already spoken infallibly on that, uh, or or that it was not already a part of the infallible uh, uh, tradition of the Church, the ordinary magisterium of the Church for 2,000 years. Well, you know, with the exception of that, the, the, the exception of the gender-bending nonsense, all of these items are just garden-variety dissent that's been on the table for 50 years. And I was reading about it the other day, and it remain, reminded me of a Pew Research survey from a few years ago. So I went into my archive, uh, research archive, and I dug it up, and I think it might surprise you. Uh, this Pew Research Center study on American Catholics found that the majority of people who identify as practicing, not cultural, cultural Catholics, but practicing Catholics, dissent, the majority of them dissent from church teaching. And further, that a lot of them assume that the church will eventually come around to their way of thinking. Uh, not surprisingly, they, they found dissent amongst uh, people who go to church less often than once a week to be higher than those who go um, you know, regularly fulfill their, their Sunday obligation. Again, not a shock. I mean, um, people regularly committing mortal sin by missing Mass through their own fault are probably not going to be too fussy about doctrine. But what was surprising, though, is the, the number of dissenters amongst those who go to Mass every Sunday or even more often. And, and I probably don't need to point out that we're talking about Catholics who assisted the Novus Ordo Missae and not traditional Latin Mass Catholics. Uh, but I will. <laughs> anyway, here's a partial list of those Catholics who dissent broken down by those who go to Mass at least weekly compared to those who don't. So um, those who go less than than every week, 71% want married priests, 68% want women's ordination, again, a a good majority, 83% approve of birth control. 52 approve of so-called gay marriage, 70% for communion uh, for those who have been divorced and remarried without an annulment, and 71% uh, approve the uh, communion for people who are cohabitating, in other words, living without benefit of clergy. Now, those numbers are high, but, but they're not so surprising, considering that these practicing Catholics can't be bothered to faithfully fulfill their Sunday obligation. More surprising were the numbers of those who attend weekly or more 
almost half, 48%, and this is a few years ago, the number might be higher now, 48% want married priests, 45% want women's ordination, 65% think the church should approve artificial birth control, 37% say they should approve gay marriage, 50% uh, they approve giving communion to Catholics who are divorced and remarried without an annulment, and 46% think that Catholic couples who are cohabitating, who are living as man and wife but without being married, should also be allowed to receive communion. Right? So in an unrepentant uh, state of mortal sin, shouldn't be a, a bar to communion. Now, of the things that I just mentioned on that list, the only thing that actually can change, I mean, uh, uh, not de facto but de jure, is the discipline of priestly celibacy. I mean, there's a good, re- lots of good reasons, really, for priestly celibacy, and it's a topic, you know, for a whole other show. But the point is that it is a discipline, and it could theoretically change. I wouldn't hold my breath. However, the church's position on women's ordination, contraception, so-called same-sex marriage, these are matters of doctrine, and doctrines cannot change. But wait, you say, doctrines surely can develop and so they can, but in the way that a photograph develops. Remember those old Polaroid pictures? Uh, the, the image would pop out of the camera and slowly become clearer and clearer until all the details came into focus. That is how doctrine develops. Nothing's added, nothing's taken away, meaning doctrines can't change into something other than what they already are. That's no nonsense. Okay, more on this. Descent by the numbers when we come back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about dissent in the Catholic Church amongst practicing Catholics. And I was making the point that doctrine cannot change, which is to say doctrines can develop, but uh, that's a matter of the details becoming clearer of, of something that's already in the deposit of faith, right? Doctrines cannot change into something other than what they already are. See, that would not be a development, but a contradiction, and a contradiction is a nonsense. Simply put, the church doesn't have the authority to change anything in the deposit of faith. On the contrary, it's the bishop's job, and that includes the Bishop of Rome. It's their job to hand on the deposit of faith intact to each generation, which we managed to do pretty successfully until about 1960. But I digress. Another interesting feature of the poll was that the dissenting Catholics they surveyed seemed fairly confident that the the doctrinal changes that they support will eventually become the new orthodoxy and be accepted by everybody. Now, on that point, or on every point, I should say, at, at least... Half of the dissenting Catholics expected that their desired change would not only come about, but in, you know, by 2050. And interestingly, dissenters who attend Mass regularly actually turned out to be more optimistic uh, about the changes coming to pass than dissenters who uh, don't go to church every Sunday. Uh, and that's not that surprising. I mean, Martin Luther considered himself devout, and, and um, at least at first he thought the church would eventually see things his way. Uh, interesting thing for me is that even though, you know, uh, there are a few dissenters who go to Mass regularly, there are about four percentage ports more likely on average to say that their desired change would definitely happen compared to the dissenters who, who come, you know, less regularly. 
Anyway, as for Catholics who hope that the, uh, the teachings would remain unchanged, which is to say faithful Catholics, or maybe I should just say Catholics, um, weirdly, they were um, largely confident that the deposit of faith will, in fact, remain unchanged. But while fewer than 40% of Orthodox Catholic thought a change was likely, a surprising number, at least to me, a surprising number of solid Orthodox practicing Catholics think that the changes in doctrine probably will happen. And that probably stems from, from a, a misunderstanding of the nature of the church. Um, so the, we look at the share of Catholics who think that um, doctrines will probably or definitely change. Okay, uh, Those in favor of the change, 58% think that we will have married priests. 55% saw the majority think we will have women priests. 67% think the church will accept artificial birth control. 51%, again, a simple majority, but a majority, think that uh, the church will do gay marriages. Uh, 66% think, think that uh, communion after remarriage will no longer be a big deal in communicating uh, while cohabitating, right, living as man and wife without benefit of clergy. 67% think that that's going to become the new normal. Now, of those who oppose the changes— Right, who just simply want to remain faithful to what the church has always taught. A surprising number of them also think that the doctrines are likely to change. 23% think that we will have married priests. 19% that we'll have women priests. And it's almost, that's almost a fifth of practicing Catholics who you know, are Orthodox in belief think the church is going to ordain women, which is an impossibility. You know, just as it's physically impossible for for a, a woman to be a father in the natural sense, right, physically, it's also spiritually impossible, right? And it's pretty, call no woman father. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, okay, birth control, 34% of practicing Catholics who, who you know, Orthodox Catholics think that we're going to have, uh, the church is going to change a position on artificial birth control. 34% on think they're going to change on communion after remarriage. And 37% think that they're going to allow for communion for the unmarried but cohabitating. You know, um, it's also interesting, if you actually read the poll, um, the faithful Catholics are identified as Catholics who oppose change. Okay? <laughs> we're, we're the Catholics that oppose change, right? So we're in the minority. Um, and, you know, even though the, the numbers are quite a bit lower, it is surprising to me that, that faithful Catholics in such significant percentages, from nearly a quarter to, to a third in some cases, over a third, actually believe that the church not only can, but will change the doctrines uh, of the faith. I want to go on record right now saying that that is not going to happen. The fact is, for the last 50 years, we've had a lot of folks uh, in the church pretending that the church can change her doctrines, uh, or in fact that she already has. Every time somebody says that went out with Vatican II, they're perpetuating that nonsense. Well, it doesn't matter how many people think that. Uh, the teaching of the church is clear. It's there for everyone to see. The, the, the catechisms, the, the, the Bible, the, the significant documents of the church, uh, the, the encyclicals of the popes, it's all online in English for free, as well as other languages. It has never been easier to find good information and to know what the church really teaches than ever in history. And all I have to do is bypass the media and popular opinion and go to the sources, okay, which are available for free. Catechism of the Catholic Church, Catechism of the Council of Trent, no expiration date on the truth. 
the old Baltimore Catechism, the Dewey Reams Bible, as well as the, as the New American. Now, Vatican I solemnly defined that the way the Church understands her doctrines cannot substantially change, even in the name of a deeper understanding. Again, doctrine can develop in the sense that we can understand a doctrine more fully, more deeply, but never in a way that contradicts the original or traditional meaning. That is not negotiable. But we've got to live with the reality of these numbers, with the reality, uh, the reality of the great, well, the, the, the vast majority of Catholics don't uh, practice their faith at all. And apparently uh, a solid majority of the Catholics that do don't know their faith. And the bad fruits of, of things like the, the Deutschland Synodal, Synodal Weg, right? the, the German Synodal Way, Synodale Weg, <laughs> German is so atrocious. Um, now, you know, when they published their conclusions, the Vatican produced, a, in my opinion, a rather weakly worded response saying that such things go against the discipline of the church. Um, you know, it's in reality, like I said before, only priestly celibacy and, and possibly the lay preaching are matters of discipline. The rest are doctrinal. They are doctrinal matters. They do not admit of the possibility of substantial change. Cardinal Mueller was somewhat more direct than the Vatican, and uh, I wish he was still head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, but on March the 17th, St. Patrick's Day, he said, and I quote, turned into Johnny Carson, and I quote, there must be a trial, and they must be sentenced, and they must be removed from their office if they are not converting themselves and accepting the Catholic doctrine. It is very sad that a majority of bishops voted explicitly against the revealed doctrine and the revealed faith of the Catholic Church and against our Christian thinking, against the Bible, the Word of God and Holy Scripture, and in the apostolic tradition, and in the defined doctrine of the Catholic Church. Uh, whether it is a departure heretical teaching and denial of one of the doctrines of the faith or apostasy in the sense of simply walking away from Christ and from his teaching in the church to embrace some other form of religion. These are crimes. I mean, they are sins against Christ himself and obviously then of the most serious nature. And the code of canon law provides appropriate sanctions. He went on to say that uh, lay people and bishops who support these resolutions, like from the German Synodal Way, uh, are, quote, influenced by these, this LGBT and woke ideology, which is materialistic and nihilistic. He also called it absolute blasphemy to make a blessing about those forms of life, which are, according to the Bible and ecclesial doctrine, a sin, because all forms of sexuality outside of a valid matrimony is sin and cannot be blessed. You can't bless sin. I mean, that's not a difficult concept, I hope. If you look in the Bible, it's absolutely only matrimony between man and woman who are united in love in the body and the soul and have the possibility to become fathers and mothers and to found a family. That's, that's what marriage is. Cardinal Burke weighed in, calling on the Vatican to uh, sanction the bishops who voted in favor of blessing homosexual unions. Um, uh, he said that uh, it was being, the church was being used to push an ideological agenda. He said these are human inventions, human ideologies that are being pushed, and the church is being used. And what it does is renders the church then into some kind of a human agency, like a, a government agency. And it's being manipulated to foster certain programs and certain agenda. And so we need to wake up to what's happening. He said, you'll notice that in a lot of this talk, you never hear the name of our Lord. You never hear talk about what our Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us. 
and what he's asking of us. So this is a very serious situation, unquote. All right, so that's what these good bishops say that the church should do and why. The question for you and me is, what are we supposed to do? And the answer is the same thing that Catholics have always done. Uh, what we've done from the beginning, follow the great commandment, love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Remember the words of St. Athanasius in the Arian crisis. They may have the churches, but we have the Catholic faith. And as long as you stay in the state of grace, the kingdom of God is within you. You know, I was on the Terry and Jesse show, uh, had the honor to be on on Monday as uh, sitting in for Jesse Romero. And I told Terry that faithful Catholics in our days will be marked by three things in particular. Devotion to Christ, especially in the Holy Eucharist, that's number one. Fidelity to the perennial teachings of the church. And then number three is devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, I, I mentioned to Terry that one of the threads that was running through all the various approved Marian devotions is the Holy Rosary. And you wonder, why does the Mary always uh, recommend the Rosary? Why does she always do that? Why not uh, go to Mass every day or, or, you know, something along those lines? And, and I tell you, in, in my opinion, it's because the Rosary can't be taken away from you. I mean, we learned during COVID that they can take the Mass away. I mean, they can't stop the Mass from happening, but they can keep you from going. I remember sitting there watching on the live stream as, as our priest all by himself without so much as a server saying Mass in the little private chapel of, of our uh, um, directory at our church, right? They locked the doors of the churches so that we couldn't go to Mass. But like, you know, like the indwelling of the Holy Trinity which, you know, can only be destroyed by your own mortal sins, they can't take away the rosary. You don't need any permission. You don't need any preparation. You don't need any money. Uh, you know, you don't need any uh, uh, committee. All you need are the beads and your prayer. And even if they take the beads away, you can count on your fingers. And that's no nonsense. All right. Um, you know, that's it for another edition of No Nonsense Catholic. Reminding you again, hey, this weekend is our Spiritual Warfare Conference. It is beyond sold out and has been. So that ship has sailed. But you still have uh, a day to register for the live stream. Okay. Uh, today and tomorrow, you can go to vmpr.org uh, and register to watch the conference on our uh, the live stream and see Father Ripiger and the guys from... Uh, 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 the Liber Cristo ministry, Jesse Romero, and of course our special guest, Bishop Strickland, all on the live stream of the Spiritual Warfare Conference that's coming up this weekend. If you want to get on that live stream, you need to go to vmpr.org and register now. And until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.